Atamari, welcome to First Up, it's Rapare. That's Thursday, the 25th of May. Kornathan Rarere, aho. Coming up, horror in the United States after a gunman kills 19 children and two teachers at a Texas primary school. We're going to hear how Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is being received on her visit to the USA. Also, Finance Minister Grant Robertson will be here to talk about the OCR and budgets and 40-year-old triathlete Andrea Hansen on how she made the Commonwealth Games squad just 15 months after having a baby. After having a baby, I knew I wanted to get fit again and that was just the goal at the beginning. Um, It worked out really well and I got pretty fit pretty fast. So I went for it and went to the qualifying races and here I am. Atamariet, welcome to First Up in America. Yesterday, families in Texas dropped their kids off at school and then they never got to pick them up. In an all-too-familiar scenario in America, a man with a gun stormed a building, this time Rob Elementary School in the city of Vivaldi, Texas, and he started shooting innocent children and teachers. Now, the power of the weapon used was so great that parents who'd shown up to collect their kids were asked to provide DNA samples to help identify the victims because they were left unrecognisable. Now, in the aftermath of things like this, people look to leaders to lead, as our parliament did when both sides of the House, apart from David Seymour, acted swiftly and voted for gun reform after Christchurch. In America yesterday, it wasn't a political leader whose words summed up the frustration of a nation best, but it was a sports leader. Steve Kerr is a basketball coach. His, his team, the Golden State Warriors, are right now in the middle of the NBA playoffs. So Coach Kerr knows more than most the pain of losing a loved one to gun violence. His own father was executed at gunpoint when Kerr was a teenager. So yesterday, Steve Kerr walks into his pre-game press conference with a whole lot of sports reporters who were expecting to ask him questions about basketball. Instead, Coach Kerr, knowing that he had a platform of millions, sat down and said this. Um, I'm not going to talk about basketball. Nothing's uh, happened with our team in the last six hours. We're going to start the same way tonight. Um, any basketball questions uh, don't matter. Um since we left shoot-around, 14 children were killed 400 miles from here, and a, and a teacher. And in the last 10 days, we've had elderly black people killed in a supermarket in Buffalo. We've had Asian churchgoers killed in Southern California, and now we have children murdered at school. When are we going to do something? I'm tired. I'm, I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to, to the devastated families that are out there. I'm so tired of the, excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm tired of the moments of silence. Enough. There's 50 senators right now who refuse to vote on H.R. 8, which is a background check rule that the House passed a couple of years ago. It's been sitting there for two years. And there's a reason they won't vote on it, to hold on to power. So I ask you, Mitch McConnell, I ask all of you senators who refuse to do anything about the violence and school shootings and supermarket shootings, I ask you, are you going to put your own desire for power ahead of the lives of our children and our elderly and our churchgoers? Because that's what it looks like. It's what we do every week. So I'm fed up. I've had enough. We're going to play the game tonight. But I want 
every person here, every person listening to this, to think about your own child or grandchild or mother or father or sister brother. How would you feel if this happened to you today? We can't get numb to this. We can't sit here and just read about it and go, well, let's have a moment of silence. Yeah, go Dubs, you know. Come on, Mavs, let's go. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go play a basketball game. And, the, and 50 senators in Washington are going to hold us hostage. Do you realize that 90% of Americans, regardless of political party, want background check, universal background check? 90% of us, we are being held hostage by 50 senators in Washington who refuse to even put it to a vote, despite what we, the American people, want. They won't vote on it because they want to hold on to their own power. It's pathetic. I've had enough. That was Steve Kerr, coach of the Golden State Warriors. Uh, We'll cross to our US correspondent, Kate Fisher, for more on the unfolding tragedy a little later in the show. It is 10 past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National uh, with me, Nathan Rarity. Let's go to the UK now, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson is still on the hot seat in the wake of the release of the Sue Gray report into lockdown parties, which were held at number 10 Downing Street. And there's, of course, the photos of the Prime Minister drinking at one of those parties. For the latest on that, I'm joined by our man in London, he's Henry Riley. Morena, Henry. Kia Nathan. Hey, um, the report, and particularly those photos, have been public for about 24 hours now. So what's the latest with that? Uh, so they released a bit earlier this morning, and this is, we had a sort of drip feed of photos earlier this week, and so we've had a couple of photos in the public domain, but it really was this morning um, at around 11 o'clock, what is that, around seven hours ago when we had the full report published. We'd known sort of what the interim findings were going to be, but we finally had the conclusions from Sue Gray, and now Sue Gray, I appreciate your listeners won't know who she is, she's a senior civil servant, she's been around the block, she's been in government for ages and what's important to note is that she has quite a lot of cross-party support she's not seen as being biased towards boris johnson or to, to any sides there's a lot of respect for her now she was given the task of investigating parties alleged breaches of covid regulations in downing street back in december 2021 so She's had a while to do this, you know, six months effectively, and she has found quite a number of damning things were going on in Downing Street. I've got the list of conclusions in front of me. I won't read all 60 pages, but there are two which I think are really important to highlight, uh, Nathan. Firstly, she says, whatever the initial intent, what took place at many of the gatherings and in the way in which they developed was not in line with COVID guidance at the time. What she is saying is that the Prime Minister and those who attended, his aides, civil servants who attended those parties, those work drinks, whatever you want to call them, uh, were acting unlawfully, effectively, were not acting in a way that complied with the guidance. And her final conclusion as well, this is number eight, which is also equally as damning. She says, many will be dismayed that this kind of behaviour took place on this scale at the heart of the British government. The public have a right to expect the very highest standards of behaviour in such places. And clearly what happened fell well short of this. So Sue Gray not, you know, holding back. We also had details about individual events. There were 16 events in total. 16 events. I mean, this was not sort of one night. These are 16 events which took place between 2020 uh, and 2021. And in one of them, you hear about staff being rude towards cleaners, staff being rude towards security guards. There was a security guard who raised concerns saying, 
I don't think this is necessarily in line with the rules. And he was effectively belittled. We saw drunkenness. We saw one person who was clearing up until 10 past three in the morning. Try classing that as a work event. There was fighting. There was people vomiting. And this was all taking place in Downing Street, which is now officially the most fined residence uh, in terms of COVID breaches in London, in, in England, as a, matter, as a matter of fact. You know, isn't it interesting? I mean, a couple of weeks ago, oh, it was just a sausage roll and I didn't even know I was at, I didn't even know I was at a party. So that's 16 of those. That, that Boris Johnson, you know, could have possibly not known that he was there. So I'll ask you this, the old classic, after these, yet another problem, can Boris Johnson weather the storm? And I will tell you the same answer as I've been telling you down <laughs> the week, Nathan, at Absolutely, yes. He will will. weather the storm, in my opinion. You look, I mean, instantly in the last hour or so, we've got a Conservative MP, a man called Julian Sturdy, who I must confess is not sort of the most household name, but he's come out and now said Boris Johnson should resign. He's one of Boris's own MPs. So clearly it hasn't gotten down well with absolutely everyone. Uh, There's been a YouGov poll out, which is one of our largest polling organisations that says three in five Brits think the Prime Minister should resign after this. But it's not going to happen. We Mm. saw the Metropolitan Police, the biggest police force, release their uh, finalised their sort of, uh, uh, you know, what they were looking into last week. That led to nothing. We've now got this report into it. That didn't happen. MPs were saying, oh, we've got to wait and see what the local elections are like. The Conservatives lost over 500 seats. It was a terrible night for them. He hasn't resigned because of that. So this is this is sort of not going away, but there is no possibility of the Prime Minister resigning at the moment. He's weathered the worst of it. And if he resigns, it certainly won't be over Partygate in the near future. No. Um, will it be the last we hear at all of Partygate or do you? Uh, is there rumours around actually there was more than 16? So there are rumours that journalists have sort of more photos, more can, more photos of maybe Boris with warm cans of Australia and various sausage rolls, as you were alluding to earlier. Um, the main thing in the sort of short term is that we had th- it was a three pronged approach effectively. This so we had the Metropolitan Police investigation, which is now finished. The Prime Minister was fined. We had the Sue Gray inquiry published today pretty damning about the prime minister the final part and in some ways the least significant part but it is still substantial is the commons committee this is the privileges committee of the house of commons where mps are investigating the prime minister now the problem with that is it's led by a labor mp from the opposition and so the conservatives can say well labor would say this wouldn't they because you know they they want boris johnson to leave they don't want him to be prime minister but that is still waiting to be uh, sort of finalized and that report published we're expecting that to start properly in june so this is going to go on for a few more months if journalists in the uk have any more photos they will be released but i think the main storm is over and boris johnson has weathered it yeah henry riley thank you very much for your time sir there is our correspondent out of london Quarter past five, you're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Raradu. Let's uh, jump across the channel and we'll go over to Europe. Of course, the war still raging there. The latest concern being the impact of the war on global food supplies, uh, which is one topic of conversation at the World Economic Forum, which is meeting in Switzerland. Joining me now from Sweden is our correspondent, Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherland. Morena, Anita. Morena. Can you tell me about this annual meeting, this World Economic Forum? How is it going to be different? Because they only had one, what, a year ago? Yeah, well, it's different because now we've got we've got the war uh, in oh, Ukraine yeah. and Russia 
And and um, the International Monetary Fund has said that uh, basically anxiety around global access to food at a reasonable price is hitting the roof, particularly uh, for countries in Africa, the Middle East and in Asia. And these nations rely on affordable wheat, barley and sunflower oil. And these products are currently blocked in the ports of major producer Ukraine. Now, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen accused Russia on Tuesday of deliberately bombarding grain warehouses across Ukraine. She's also accused Russia of hoarding its own food exports as a form of blackmail to increase global prices and for trading wheat in exchange for political support. Now, the executive director of the World Food Programme, David Beasley, predicted that if Ukraine's supplies remain off the market, the world could face a food availability problem in the next 10 to 12 months. Oh, horrible. It's, Hungary has declared an interesting state, which I haven't heard of before, a legal state of danger. What What is that? And is this in relation to the Ukraine conflict? Well, yeah, uh, basically the legal state of danger allows the government to enact laws by decree without parliamentary oversight and it permits the temporary suspension of and deviation from existing laws. Now, in a video on social media, Prime Minister Viktor Orban said on Tuesday that the war in Ukraine threatens Hungary's physical security as well as the energy and financial security of the country's economy and families. Orban's right-wing government has been accused of eroding democratic freedoms in Hungary since taking power in 2010, and the Hungarian Civil Liberties Union criticised the move by saying that it will threaten citizens' fundamental rights and diminish the importance of parliament. Can you tell me uh, what's going on? Turkey and Greece have had a long-running dispute for a very, very long time, actually, Um, and I understand what the Turkish president is um, saying he's going to cut ties with the Greek prime minister. Well, President Erdogan has called Prime Minister um, Kyriakos Mitsotakis a dishonourable and lacking character as the Greek leader failed to keep his side of the deal, which was to not include third countries in their dispute. Last week, Prime Minister Mitsotakis went to Washington and addressed the US Congress in which he warned the US against arms sales to Turkey and that the last thing NATO wanted was instability in NATO's southeast flank. Now, of course, as you mentioned before, Turkey and Greece um, have had this long-running dispute and they held talks in March and more talks were scheduled later this year to try and end decades of conflict over maritime and energy issues air and sea rights in the Aegean, uh, the divided island of Cyprus, and more recently migration, and friction over rival claims to offshore gas reserves in the Aegean and eastern Mediterranean um, brought them to the brink of war in 2020. Yeah, thank you very much for your report out of Sweden. Uh, that's all the goings-on in Europe with our correspondent, Dr Anita purcell Sherland. At 19 past five, uh, this is first up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Raderdeer. We're going to ask our US correspondent how Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's visit is going to the United States. And we're also going to hear from triathlete and inspiration Andrea Hansen, 15 months ago having a baby, now on her way to the Com Games. Time to check in with the local democracy reporting programme. This morning we're in Gisborne with Matthew Rosenberg. So he told me the latest uh, on a story from Tokamaru Bay where people who are legally the landowners are homeless. The latest is that a petition has been launched and that is to abolish legislation, that's the hope, that is effectively locking Māori out of ownership of their land. 
so in Tokamaru Bay, which is a small town of about 450 people, yeah. about an hour and a half north of Gisborne, there are blocks of land called the Tuatini Tanks, and these blocks are land that are Māori-owned by a group of about 390 owners. Last 100 years or so, that group has been severely limited as to what they can actually do with the land. Sometime after 1910, a series of leases were, were given up ahead of time. And when the new leases were issued, they were done in error under an act called the Public Bodies Leases Act and included uh, were a set of conditions which have proven a real thorn in the side for the Māori landowners. And it was basically just the result of a government error. And those conditions mean that the leases are perpetually renewable for up to 999 years. So the land is still owned by Māori, but they have little to no control over how it's used and who uses it as well. It's, that's unbelievable. I just can't imagine, you know, that anyone would be standing up and feel sorry that uh, Tokamaru Base had this because it's, you know, it's distant. It's good that you're onto the scene here, Matthew, about this. And there's one woman on a mission to rectify that situation. Who's that? Yeah, that's right. So well, there's a couple, actually. Uh, one of the owners, Tina Olsen Ratana, um, she's been chipping away at the government for some time. And in February, she enlisted the help of some lawyers and they put a letter together to the government requesting a sit-down to discuss the leases. Yeah, as I said, that was in February, and the last I heard a couple of weeks ago, they still hadn't heard back. So there's definitely some frustration brewing. Um, but the most recent development is that her niece uh, has launched a petition which she hopes to take to Parliament, and that seems to be going pretty well. It's, locked, it's clocked up over a 1,000 signatures in a pretty short space of time, so it seems like people are pretty upset about this. And, and, you know, Tina there, does she have a lot of, a lot of support? I mean, I know there's the people signing the, uh, signing the petition there as well, but does she seem to have a good, good amount of support around her? Yeah, it seems she does. But I, it also feels like because they've been, you know, locked out of, of control of the land for so long and they hardly get, the owners hardly get anything off it, just peanuts really. Yeah. For the financial year ended March 2020, because it's overseen by the Titumu Pairoa administering body. So by the time they take their cuts, it was just under $6,000 in total rent for a whole year. And split between 390 owners, that's not going to go very far. It's nothing at all. No, well, let's hope we can get some movement on that. Talk to me about the San Rosa. (laughs) Yeah, it all seems to be happening in Tokamaru Bay, Nathan, because we've got a bit of a stranded boat mystery. So... On April the 9th, the next fishing trawler by the name of San Rosa was en route from Tauranga to Marlborough uh, when it encountered some rough seas, and this was just before Cyclone Philly. So apparently they encountered swells about four metres, and they're about 10 nautical miles off the coast of Tokamaru when they sent out the May Day. So the three crew members were winched to safety by helicopter along with their dog, but the San Rosa was just left to bobble out at sea. Can, is it salvageable? Can they get it? So, yeah, well, well, what happened is that six days later, washed up ashore in one piece on a remote section of beach near Tiki Tiki, and, and that's where it's, it's sat ever since. But it's, it is eroding, and it looks like there's been a few people who have had a, a few resourceful people who have taken to the boat, so all the gas has been siphoned and most of the interior has been stripped. But in a bit of a twist, the Gisborne District Council Harbour Master, Peter Buell, hasn't been able to get hold of the owner who are still liable for it. Where, where, who are the owners? So that they know they are. Is it, is it a New Zealand-owned ship? It's been a wee bit hard to find out, actually. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a mystery, too. So he's been, he has their contact details because he's been calling them and texting them, and he even put a public notice in a Nelson newspaper 
obviously the boat was en route to Marlborough, so they must be they must have some sort of clue as to the owner's whereabouts of putting targeted ads in newspapers. But no luck yet. Yeah, in the meantime, as I said, the boat's been pretty stripped back, uh, and the owners had until Friday actually to get rid of it because, as I said, they're, they're still liable. Matthew, you were saying before that Pete, there had been, let's call them resourceful locals that might have siphoned the gas out of it. I'm just thinking <laughs> that's probably good as far as the environment goes. Is there any worry that you know a beached ship here might leak oil around and be an environmental hazard? Yeah, that's a good point, actually. And Peter pointed that out. He was actually quite relieved that it had been siphoned. <laughs> so, <laughs> but he wasn't too happy about it just sitting there. That's Matthew Rosenberg, our, our LDR reporter with interesting news there from up the East Coast. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Ah, uh, let's have a look at some things. Uh, on this day, in 1926, Miles Davis was born. Nope, the jazz, the jazz trumpeter, that one. Uh, 1948, the birth of Stevie Nicks. She's 74 years old today. Lenny Kravitz turns 58. Helena Bonham, Bonham Carter, sorry, she's 56. And uh, a couple of um, countries got their independence on this day. Uh, Guyana, though, that's mainly when we're looking at Guyana getting independence from Britain in 1966. Oh, forgot a birthday. Uh, Matt Stone, one of the creators of South Park, is 51 years old today. On this day in 1994, it was a, really? As the king of pop, Michael Jackson, married the daughter of rock and roll, uh, Lisa Marie Presley, in the Dominican Republic, which is always a pointer to a really good marriage when you go and do it in an entirely other country none of your mates can come to uh, in 19 uh, sorry in 1897 on this day a book came out and a lot of people went well the Irish bloke wrote this yes Bram Stoker uh, he published his gothic horror classic called Dracula which became the basis for an entire genre of literary uh, literature sorry and films about vampires and on this day in 2006 Disney released a film called Cars Cars was uh, the last Pixar film made before the company was purchased, and also it has the distinction of being Paul Newman's last acting role. There you are, and that is Cars. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Joining us now from the business team is Nicholas Poynton. Cars, mate, big movie. Oh, I still remember. I'd watch it now, actually. <laughs> you know, it's one of those films that, at the time, when I watched it, I was probably like, what, 10? Yeah. I was like, damn, this is a good film. This is a great movie. It's cinema. But even now, like, a lot of those, the, all the Pixar films, they yeah, all age they're all still really so good cinema. well. You know? <laughs> like, Finding Nemo, that's a classic film. Oh, it is too, actually. That's a great film. I don't know what they're doing. Hey, um, tell me about this, the online shopping boom. Still going? Yep, we'll go from um, Finding Nemo to online shopping. Yeah, well, you can buy that on online, so it Yeah, you can. So, look, like work from home, this is one of those trends that throughout the pandemic has just... Um, we were already shifting towards this, but it's just been accelerated tenfold. We've got these latest figures from NZ Post. Mm. Now, they're not the be-all and end-all when it comes to online shipping in New Zealand, but they do give us a bit of an indication of what's going on there. They tell us that $2.2 billion worth of goods were purchased online in the first three months of 2022. That's up a third on the same quarter last year. Now, there are a couple of things that may have uh, influenced that, one being that there was the effect of the Omicron lockdown, but also the value of sales. Remember, we're dealing with pretty high inflation Mm. at the moment. But look, the number of online customers jumped as well from about 2 million to 2.3 million. 
as well did the size of the average order. And some of the big things that New Zealanders were spending money on during that period were things like homeware, appliances, electronics, health and beauty, clothing and footwear, sort of the usual things I yeah. feel like people usually buy online. Um, you've also got the changing ways in how people are buying. Um, a big surge in buy now, pay later schemes. It's a much more popular form of credit for young people. And then most of the remaining sectors that saw growth were things like books and stationery, uh, modest growth compared with last year. But yeah. um, I don't know, were you a big online shopper to start the year? I live in a house that's a big online shopper. Was that diplomatic or what? What an answer that was. <laughs> but it's like, you're, not pointing, again. you're not pointing fingers, but fingers no, no, have been pointed. <laughs> kind of like my flat, but yeah. <laughs> Hey, um, the Reserve Bank um, signalling just how serious it is about inflation. Yeah, the big thing we saw, well, Big news yesterday, mm. interest rates up, wholesale interest rates that are up 50 basis points, but um, every two Reserve Bank meetings, they they release update, updated forecasts, sort of signal where they want to go with monetary policy. Mm. Interesting thing here was how aggressive they expect to get this year. Um, initially, you know, when they started on this tightening path of monetary policy, they thought they would get to about 3.3%, 3.5% in the official cash rate by sort of middle to late uh, 2023. Yeah. Well, they expect us to get there by the end of the year. That, mm. they, they talk about how – well, when, we, when, when COVID first hit, they talked about how uh, – they, they they couldn't risk it. They had to go hard. They had to go early. Well, they're taking the same sort of attitude towards its tightening of monetary policy. So we've had two 50 basis point rises. They signal a, a couple more at, across the next two meetings before uh, a more gradual tightening towards the end of the year. But what that means is we're going to see a sharp tightening in credit conditions. It's going to become much more expensive uh, for people to, uh, you know, with things like mortgage repayments, talk about consumer spending just before, that's probably going to tail off as well. But as the Reserve Bank says, inflation, they cannot let it get it entrenched. They expect mm. to get to about 7% by the middle of the year, and hopefully it will trend downwards from then. Oh, crikey. Thank you very much, <laughs> Nicholas Poynton. Uh, you can hear more from the business team this morning on Morning Report at 10.27 to the Money Markets now. Your New Zealand dollar is out there and it's shopping and it is buying the following 64.55 US cents, 91.4 Australian cents, 60.58 euro cents, 51.47 British pence, 4.33 yuan, 82.27 Japanese yen, 38.97 Russian rubles, and 34.84 Gambian Delasi out there and everybody wants those at the moment look uh, nappies and baby bibs will be alongside bike helmets and running shoes when New Zealand's triathlete Andrea Hansen packs her bags for the upcoming Commonwealth Games. Just 15 months after giving birth to her daughter Flossie Hansen is one of six who's been selected in our triathlon team for Birmingham Uh, as Clay Wilson reports the 40 year old has her sights set on a third Commonwealth Games medal it's easy to believe Andrea Hansen when she says thoughts of competing again never slipped from her mind. Just two weeks after the arrival of her daughter early last year, the three-time Olympian was back in the water swimming. Runs with the pram soon followed, while she says young Flossie was also happy to nod off to the noise of mum's bike whirring away on the indoor wind trainer. Fast forward 15 months and Hansen has been named for her fourth Commonwealth Games. 
after having a baby, I knew I wanted to get fit again. And that was just the goal at the beginning and like not knowing how that was going to go. Um, it worked out really well and I got pretty fit pretty fast. So I went for it and went to the qualifying races and here I am. Two runner-up finishes and a third in those qualifying races proved Henson still has it. But the 40-year-old admits there's more to do ahead of the Games in July. Definitely still improving, so um, the form is coming back. I was surprised with my races up north in April, so definitely still yeah, doing pretty well. So I'm racing in two and a half weeks in Leeds, so um, I'll show on the world stage there what I can do. Someone who did plenty of that is Triathlon New Zealand General Manager of Performance, Hamish Carter. The 2004 Olympic gold medalist says knowing how determined Hanson is, he's not surprised at her selection. A number of athletes, when they come back from having a baby, they seem to be stronger in the triathlon as an endurance sport. But it was also, she had to really come back and perform to make the team, and she did. So that's kind of her experience, how to produce good performances when it matters. A quality increasingly being shown by Hayden Wilde, who headlines the six-strong New Zealand Triathlon Commonwealth Games team. Since heading back overseas, the Tokyo Olympics bronze medalist has won the Arena Games in Singapore and finished second at the World Series event in Yokohama. Both have included good battles with Tokyo's silver medalist Alex Yee, and Wilde is looking forward to another big matchup with his British rival in Birmingham. Alex and I would normally come out of the water pretty close to each other and you know, we'll probably work together pretty hard on the bike to bridge that gap up to the front guys. So, um, you know, we're both the same age and um, we're still young and learning lots. So, you know, it's going to be really exciting to kind of, you know, have another individual shootout. Hansen also plans to be standing on the podium. Already a two-time Commonwealth medalist, the self-described mum of the New Zealand team says being a mum for real hasn't changed her competitive aspirations. I'm a different athlete now, so I definitely still want to be in that mixed relay team and yeah, definitely go for a medal. So my goal is to get a medal and do my best I can in the individual race. Tokyo Olympians Taylor Reid, Ainsley Thorpe and Nicole Vanderkay and Commonwealth Games debutante Dylan McCullough round out the New Zealand team for Birmingham. Clay Wilson with that report. Well, as Australia's new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, arrives back in this country, he's going to be faced with news that, like here and many places around the world, electricity and fuel prices are forecast to rise even further. So what's causing the price hike and how will the, how will his Labour Party uh, go about bringing prices down? The ABC's Oliver Gordon reports. Cost of living was a constant theme in Anthony Albanese's pitch to the nation. Coming up again... What you can do is have a plan to address cost of living issues. And again... Well, the truth is uh, that the cost of everything is going through the roof. And again... My plan to reduce the cost of living will help you to get ahead. Now he's got the top job, Anthony Albanese is faced with the task of neutralising those pressures. But with forecasts predicting both rising power prices and rising fuel prices, that's a challenging prospect. In Victoria, the independent energy regulator has approved an average increase of 5% on Victorian energy prices. That's bad news for Khan Nguyen, co-owner of the Aru restaurant in Melbourne's CBD. The prices for everything has come up quite substantially and um, I mean at the moment we're kind of just going with it and trying to you know hope it goes down eventually but you know if it keeps coming up like this then 
eventually we might have to start putting our prices up in the me- on the menu. The business owner was expecting prices to stabilise after the state's pandemic lockdowns, but they've done the opposite. Now we're noticing the electricity and gas prices coming up as well. Before it was just the price of produce. I think in the last six months or so, it's a noticeable difference. And increases are expected in other states as well. So why are energy costs so high at the moment? Energy expert Lisa Zembro says there are a couple of factors. The first of those is the increasing unreliability of coal-fired power stations. So we actually saw a new 15-year low for the month of April. And what that means is that what we're seeing those coal-fired generations face is unplanned outages. As they age, they become less reliable, less dispatchable. The second reason is the high price of coal at the moment. So they've continued to rise, reaching new all-time highs again, and that's creating a situation where coal-fired generators are bidding in their generation at higher prices than what they were just a few months back at the beginning of the year. There are also projections of higher fuel costs around the corner. They're being driven up by rising oil prices, which are in turn still largely being driven by the war in Ukraine. In late March, the coalition halved the petrol excise, reducing the amount of money motorists pay to the government on fuel by around 22 cents. That's set to expire in late September, and it's not expected the new Labor government will renew it. So what can Anthony Albanese and his new team do about rising costs? When it comes to electricity, Lisa Zambrose says he needs to be thinking both short-term and long-term. So in the short-term, educating on how households can ensure that they're on the lowest rate possible, you know, teach them or educate them around government programs that are available, like Vic Energy Upgrades or Vic Solar Homes, those types of things. How can they better insulate their homes? How can they seal their drafts? So ensuring that the households can reduce their costs now, but they need to be playing the long game as well. So the number one thing that we need to be doing is moving away from fossil fuels. The less reliant we are on fossil fuels, the less impacted we will be by these global energy crises. Back at Khan Yuen's Melbourne restaurant, his team is doing its best to adapt to higher power and gas costs. But with the prospect of another hike now a reality, he's feeling nervous about the future. I mean, we're still recovering from COVID and if the prices keep going up and we put our menu prices up, people aren't just going to go out as often anymore. That's restaurateur Khan Yuen ending that report from the ABC's Oliver Gordon. Nineteen minutes to six, and Nathan Radere, you would first up on RNZ National. So between now and six, we find out what's going on in Morning Report. Also, Kate Fisher joins us uh, from the USA, and we're going to speak with your finance minister and acting prime minister at the moment, Grant Robertson. <laughs> Professionals of RNZ of the Morning Report team. It's Susie Ferguson who is here to tell us what's on the uh, what's on the dance card for today. Kia ora, Susie. Oh, kia ora, Nathan. Yeah, we're going to be looking at the situation in Auckland. More shots fired last night. Shootings in Massey and also Mellons Bay. And this comes, of course, as we head over to the US as well. Mm. Some of the names of the children killed in yesterday's school shooting in Texas starting to be released. We'll also bring you the latest from Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's trip to the United States and more on Partygate. 
as that key report in the UK is released. It is all coming up after six. Thank you very much, Susie Ferguson. Well, as you heard, yeah, 19 students and at least two teachers were murdered uh, during a shooting at a primary school in Texas yesterday. That's just the latest in a spate of mass shootings in the United States. The 18-year-old gunman carried out the killings at Robb Elementary School in the city of Uvalde. Authorities say the carnage began when the suspect shot his own grandmother, who survived. Joining us uh, from the States now is Kate Fisher with the latest. Kia ora, Kate. Can you, can you tell us what are the latest developments? Well, uh, just before I came into the studio to speak to you, I've been listening to Texas Governor Greg Abbott giving an update. Um, and he did give us a few more details. He said that there are, in addition to the 19 children killed and two adults, 17 more people injured, although they're not believed to be in a life-threatening condition. He said that the gunman first shot his grandmother in the face and it was her who called the police after that happened. Um, where he fled her house and went to the school where he had a, a kind of crashed his car before entering the school. Um, Greg Abbott said that they he had posted on Facebook around half an hour before the incident saying that I'm going to shoot my grandmother. He then posted on Facebook, I shot my grandmother. And then about 15 minutes before he got to the school, he posted, I'm going to shoot an elementary school. Um, the governor also told us that uh, he praised the, the emergency services and the first responders and the police, the, the law enforcement who came to the school and ultimately killed the gunman. Um, and he said that one of those, one deputy sheriff, actually lost his daughter in this massacre. Uh, he then went on to say that he believes, and he's been told by many people, um, many of the, the law enforcement officials, that mental health illness in the community is the problem here, and that he believes is what's caused all this. Now, this is Greg Abbott, who uh, quite proudly was um, messaging support. He, he tweets about it a lot of the time for the gun lobby. I saw, what, last month even he tweeted, he said, oh, this is disgusting, we're second behind another state to do with buy guns. We need to buy more guns. When, when he comes out and talks like this, what is the reaction to it politically from, from other people or even from members of the public that you've heard? Well, from his own party, the Republicans, it's a very positive reaction. They complete, most of them agree with him. They do not believe that this is a problem about access to guns. They believe it is other societal issues that cause this. Uh, Democrats, of course, think the opposite. Um, and this is just in the last, um, you know, just under 24 hours, we've been hearing, uh, again, these really uh, opposing views about how to solve this issue. Um, from opinion polls, we know that most Americans believe there should be more common sense gun control in the country, but uh, most Republic, uh, um, a lot of Republican voters don't agree with that. The National Rifle Association is a very powerful, very wealthy lobby in the US. It gives lots and lots of money to Republican uh, politicians. Uh, they want that money. They need it to keep their seats. And so it, they are not able, they will not vote for this gun, these uh, new gun laws, because it means that they will lose their funding and much of their support. Kate, just finally, we were all, I mean, our eyes were trained more on the United States because our Prime Minister is there, Jacinda Ardern. She's got a speech to do at Harvard, um, are things hoping to meet there. How's she being received in the United States? 
Well, she appeared on one of the the big uh, late shows with Stephen Colbert uh, and went down very well indeed. She's generally um, liked, certainly by more of the left side of the US, and she put in a uh, a really uh, strong interview there. And it was, you know, the first question he made to her was about... Um, what she, you know, her response uh, to what had happened in Texas and to ask her about how New Zealand has changed things since uh, the tragedy in Christchurch. And she made it very clear that they knew that, you know, they reacted to the awful incident that happened by making changes to gun laws, banning those um, automatic weapons and and the, the buyback scheme. And she was applauded by the studio audience uh, when, when she spoke about this and she, she described uh, New Zealanders as a very pragmatic people. Kate, thank you very much for your reports there out of the United States on um, just a just an, an absolutely uh, horrific happening there at the Rob Elementary School on uh, in the Texas town of Uvalde. Well, uh, I asked the Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson during our regular weekly chat for his response to the tragedy in Texas. Oh, it's, it's heartrending, Nathan, every time we have one of these shootings that we see. And when that involves school kids in particular, it just makes it even harder for all of us. And, yeah, obviously our hearts go out to the families. It, it, it's tough when we're here in New Zealand and, you know, and we have um, some ability to have distance from it. We've not been immune from these kinds of shootings, obviously, very high-profile way, but it is extremely tough. We try not to comment on other countries' politics, but no matter where you sit on these things, um, there's obviously a massive issue for the United States to be dealing with. And I'm pleased that here in New Zealand we've been able to make some changes that we did to our gun laws and, and you know continue to make sure we keep our people safe. And, and, I mean, we had eyes on the United States because the Prime Minister's there and and what seems like a bit of a cursed trip. We've had COVID and then with President Biden being away and stuff as well. And I know she was on with Stephen Colbert, who she's very popular with, but, gee, that's a a tough situation to be on almost a comedian show. Uh, And I imagine having to talk about things like that. Yeah, look, you know, but they they know each other well. Obviously, people will recall that Stephen Colbert came to New Zealand and the Prime Minister picked him up at the airport. Uh, And so they, you know, their relationship's a good one. And I think they covered a a host of topics. Um, I haven't actually seen any any footage from it yet. But uh, yeah, I think they did cover a range of issues. And those who are in America who who constantly have to deal with these issues, I think are really well aware of of the impact it has. But it was a very busy day for uh, the Prime Minister on her first day um, with with work with our, our trade mission that's over there, meetings at the UN, um, being on that show and um, the last conversation I had with her, she was getting up at 4.45 in the morning, so it's it's definitely a packed programme. Oh, and, and she's speaking to some, what, 32,000 Harvard graduates as well, which is quite an interesting thing. I mean, she's got that, she's got Colbert as well, she's very popular among many people around the world. I mean, aside from her supporters here being happy about it, what does it do for, for our country? Yeah, look, it, it is something that opens doors, and and we saw that when the prime minister was in Japan, where there was you know real um, interest in her, and obviously in the United States. And from from our perspective, getting out there and telling the world that we're open for business, that we're open for tourists, uh, it's really important to have someone like the prime minister who can get that cut through. It's funny you mentioned the Harvard speech because I'm not sure New Zealanders entirely understand just how big a deal that is. Um, that commencement speech is is being given by the likes of Barry 
Barack Obama and Benazir Bhutto and all sorts of people in history. And it's a real occasion. Harvard, obviously, as everyone knows what it, its history, but as you say, a massive number of people. Um, and it's going to be a real moment for, for New Zealand, I think, when she delivers that speech. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk about being open for business. I know that Queenstown businesses, they've been talking about just being massively short-staffed at the moment, just as they're gearing up for that busy tourist season. What, what are you hearing about the extent of that issue and how long is it likely to for us to get that migrant workers, you know, as many as we need through the border? Yeah, look, there, there definitely are, you know, uh, labour shortages around New Zealand. I think we've, we're all aware of that. We've been specifically working on things like the Working Holiday Visa Program, which has often been a real source for people who, in the tourism and hospitality sector, and we've had the, the numbers are a few weeks old, but I think at least five to 7,000 applications coming through and being processed for that. So those people are coming back on board. Um, obviously, when the border opens fully at the end of July, we're going to see a lot more people come in. And we've been working with the sector knowing that big boost is going to be in the summer period. Obviously, for Queenstown with the ski season, they've got a little bit more at the moment. But um, we're working very hard to make sure that we do see people come in. And there are plenty of people who want to come into New Zealand and work uh, who haven't been able to more recently because of the closed borders. So conscious that it's been a tough time, but heaps of work going into to make sure, particularly from that July period onwards, that that we've got the people we need. Okay, let's go to the budget. So if we have a look at the budget, which you were working on, it, it emerged that Treasury, so they advised against that one-off $350 payment for low- and middle-income earners. You, you got that advice from them. Why, why did you decide to ignore that advice? <laughs> Yeah, look, I mean, for us, it was about making sure that we were able to reach a wider group of New Zealanders um, who were being affected by cost of living pressures, but still do it in a, in a sustainable way. And for us, we could see that there were people who weren't in receipt of the support we'd given on the 1st of April with the big package there, all from the winter energy payment, who were having a tough time. And so it's not unheard of for ministers of finance to disagree with the Treasury. It does happen from time to time. What they were really at pains to point out was that the pay payments needed to be temporary and targeted to make sure that we didn't exacerbate inflation. And so that's what we've done. It's a, you know, it's a three months of payment, $27 a week across those three months. But then obviously it ends. And that contrasts with perhaps tax cuts where someone like me would get the benefit and it would go on forever. That would exacerbate inflation far worse than this does. So we tried to strike a balance there, but we knew that we wanted to extend it out and Treasury didn't agree with that, but we did try to listen to uh, their views of making sure it was a temporary payment. Is it correct that 750 IRD staff are going to be needed to administer that payment? I'm not sure about the exact number, but there will be a number of people. that They won't all, all be full-time employees. There'll be people who come in to support getting the payment up and running. But we do know that whenever we make a change like this, a lot of people ring with queries and questions and email in with queries and questions, and we want to be able to process them quickly, and we want to make sure that people get the money um, when we've said they're going to get it. So it does require uh, a bit of work to do that. One thing I can say to, to use um, First Up as a as a vehicle to let people know this is you don't actually have to do anything to get the payment if you have a bank account number that IRD know about. If you don't, you'll need to let them know your bank account details. But otherwise, you're all good to get it. And, and basically, you will have that if you've, if you've had communication or done a tax return. So that will reduce some of the calls that need to be made if people realise they don't actually have to make an application. All right, I've got a scoop.
How good's that? <laughs> hey, um, let's let's talk about the OCR. So the Reserve Bank, you know, set the official cash rate at a six-year high to to try and counter inflation. Did it have a choice? Well, it was certainly a very predictable and expected decision. You know, the Reserve Bank's job is to get inflation to between one and three percent, and obviously, at the moment, it's sitting at six. Nine, they have that job over the medium term, and so they've laid out the the direction of travel they want to go in and to get there. And so, this is their job. Monetary policy in New Zealand is set independently by the Reserve Bank. They need to think about employment outcomes. They would argue at the moment that we're actually below. You know, we're in a position where we've gone beyond maximum sustainable employment, so they don't need to worry about that at the moment. So they're focused on the inflation side, and this is their job. And I, I think it was very predictable that they did what they did. Yeah, I mean, they foreshadow that. I mean, things aren't going to get. It's not like they're going to get great in a year or so, don't they? Yeah, look, and this is one of the most volatile times I've experienced as a finance minister and the global economy. We do have all of this confluence of of things coming together with um, the COVID um, still being affected, particularly in the way China is still doing its elimination strategy. That's putting a lot of pressure on supply chains that were already under pressure. We've got uh, the war in Ukraine and we've got this inflation globally around the world. And then there's some talk now of other places where the economy is slowing down and they're worried about recession. In that environment, very hard to predict. What the Bank did say today is, you know, they keep monitoring once every six weeks. They've given a direction of travel. And I think people now have that, that, that kind of certainty to work with in what is a really, really challenging time for a lot of people. That's Grant Robertson there. Finally this morning, some of your feedback has come in. John in Queenstown, or possibly John Queenstown, says, worth remembering that the national government abolished gun registration in 1983 in a fit of madness and cheap imported autos flooded in, leading to this situation whereby the reality is no one has a clue where the guns are now. Greg uh, from Napier says he loves first up, uh, loves the days of our lives thing, but if you ever wonder why the voiceover guy has to tell us his name is McDonald Carey, well he has to tell us that sir, because his name is McDonald Carey. Those are the days of our lives. What a day it's been. Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin from all of us here at First Up. Have yourselves a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears. Ha, poor, poor.